reading today will be um, from John chapter 4, 46 to 54. In the Pew Bibles, uh, it'll be 889. Uh, this will be our second sermon in our series um, from the book of John, Seven Signs of Jesus' Mission. It's a specific way that John particularly um, organizes uh, his thoughts, his presentation of what Jesus did, of these seven signs, um, not just seven miracles, but seven things pointing somewhere. So stand with me as we read God's holy, wonderful word. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, help us to be amazed at the power of Jesus. Help us to be amazed at the goodness of Jesus. Help us to go to him in faith. I pray this morning that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit to bring transformation, to bring new life, to build us into people who look like Christ speak like Christ, whose aroma is that of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bring us anew to the knowledge and wonder of what he has done for us. In Jesus' holy name, amen. You may be seated. There's a pattern throughout the gospel accounts that when we see Jesus doing miracles, we see him doing so in a way that addresses situations of intense personal crisis. Have you noticed that? He doesn't just go around doing miracles in any random place, in any random way, but in a way that meets people. Ahmad showed us last week how Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine was not just a revelation of his power, but an act of overcoming this intense shame of a situation when, when the, the bridegroom was unable to provide for his guests. It was a personal, it was a communal um, shame, and Jesus entered that situation and brought this incredible resolution. It was an act of power, but it was an act of mercy, of providing. I hope if you weren't here last week to listen to Ahmad, go back, listen to that sermon. It was uh, really just a beautiful message about Jesus. I hope that you will do that. 
And John's commentary on that passage was this. He said, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. This is an interesting thing to point out. We might think that in so doing, Jesus manifested his power. I mean, how many of us can go up to a glass of water and say, become wine, and it will become wine without it being a kind of parlor trick? Or we might think that it was Jesus saying, oh, I've come to reveal, this was an act that reveals my love. I think that would have been a reasonable thing for him to say. I mean, in that he entered the situation of intense personal need and provided and met the person where, where he was, we could say that. But John says instead, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Jesus chose to reveal his glory, not just by a display of his power, but by an example of his provision. And those two things he tends to hold together as he reveals who he is. We don't see Jesus just doing miracles for the sake of impressing people. At any moment, Jesus might have turned to a stone and said, become a giraffe, and it would have done so. And everyone would have looked and said, oh my gosh, it's a giraffe. And I think if I had that power, there would be giraffes out to Wazoo. It would, it would be amazing. I mean, how amazing would that be? We, you know, have, has anybody ever asked you, uh, if you were to choose one superpower, what would it be? But how many of those things that we say are like what Jesus says, where his power and his provision are tied together? If you were to choose a superpower, would it, would it be something designed as Jesus' powers so infinite, so intimately did to, to enter someone's life and say, I am here for you. My power is here, not just to, to make a show, but to meet you where you are. It's the moments when he most freely expe- expressed his power and his glory, when he did the most impressive miracles, when he, for exactly the moments when he was most directly meeting the needs of needy people. And today's passage fits squarely into that pattern of of power and of provision, of glory and of love. We can sense the urgency in the way that the official approached Jesus. Like the man in in John 2 was running out of wine, had no idea what to do. This man comes to Jesus with a sense of urgency. Even in the setting of the story, we get a sense of that. John tells us this. He says, he, that is Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, not knowing the geography of the ancient Near East that well, we may glance over some of those words and say, okay, there's a, there's a name there, something difficult to pronounce, we'll move on, move on. But if we think about locations, if you look at the maps in your Bible, uh, we get a little bit of a clearer image. The journey from Capernaum to Cana was 16 miles, 16 and a half miles, if you drew a direct line. More likely, uh, the actual path would have been 22 to 25 miles. So this wasn't just stepping out the door, oh, there's a guy out there, maybe he can help. No, this was a few days at least journey. Not only that, this was a few days' journey with a son who, it says, was at the point of death. If you've ever had someone you love, and you 
don't know how they're doing. You don't know if they're going to survive. The thought of leaving that person's side to go somewhere is not one that is easily taken. I remember even the, the death of my grandfather a few years ago. He was an old man dying, um, surrounded by family, but he lived in New York, and we were able to go up um, and see him one last time. And leaving that room was just torture, right? You know I'm never going to see this person again. There's that, that feeling of just disconnection from someone you have loved. And you can imagine this father stepping away from his son at the point of death saying, I'm going to go see if I can get help. There's this Jesus guy who is in Cana. It's 20 miles. Let me see if I can go and if he will heal you. He goes to Jesus and he asks, and Jesus' reply is shocking. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It almost doesn't follow. It's like, how do those two statements go next to each other? How is that your reply, Jesus? How do you hear this man's plea for his child and then say, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe? There's a little bit more to this interaction um, than we may see at face value. The word we translate as official, as the the Greek word basilikos, an officer in the service specifically of a king. In this case, referring to a member of the court of Herod. He would have been a Jew, that is, of some reasonable political standing. Jesus' words here echo words that he spoke on other occasions to the scribes and the Pharisees, to the people who, in the Jewish community, had that sort of power. We don't know exactly what sort of official this was, but it was certainly someone within that system. For instance, in Matthew uh, chapter 12, verses 38 to 42, he says, uh, actually, I didn't write it here, so that would be on 817. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So one of the obvious differences as you hear those two accounts is that Jesus did not do a miracle for the scribes and the Pharisees, but of course for this official, this man who came to him. He does end up doing a miracle. So why the difference? In his speech to the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus tells them that the only sign he would give them was the sign of the prophet Jonah. He defines that sign in two ways. Uh, First, just like Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so Jesus would spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. That is, he would die, he would be buried, and he would spend three days in the tomb. 
On the third day, he would rise. Now, we know that by hindsight. I think to the original listeners, they were probably a little bit uh, bewildered about what he meant, but he would perform the sign of Jonah in spending those three days in the belly of the earth. But second, he makes reference to the men of Nineveh and to the queen of the south. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. If you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah goes to the Ninevites at not his own desire, but um, when God finally convinces him, okay, you're going to go. And the, the Ninevites, whom he doesn't want to preach to, they receive the word with gladness and they repent. And Jesus said, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south um, came to Solomon because she had heard of his great wisdom. She had heard his, his reputation even a great distance away, and she came to him with this expectation that, that she would hear something great, something wise from Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What is Jesus implying? At the end of the story of Jonah, there is a profound contrast between the people of Nineveh and the prophet Jonah. If you remember the story well, how does Jonah end the story? Is he rejoicing with the Ninevites? Is he glad for the, the glory of God? Is he you know, happy because of, of God's incredible love for, for not just himself, but for the Ninevites? No, he is pouting. He ends the story looking like a pouting child um, who's you know, first angry because of the Ninevites, then he's angry because the, the tree that was shading him is, is taken away. And he, he ends kind of in this ridiculous posture. And yet the Ninevites end the story in profound joy. We were going to be destroyed, and yet the Lord had mercy. In the same way, in Jesus' time, the good news, he says, would be received with joy. By whom? By foreigners, by Gentiles, by the unclean, by the least of these, by the poor and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. While the religious authorities... The scribes, the Pharisees, we may say the officers of Herod's court. The well-to-do would be consumed with bitterness and anger. Why? Because of God's unexpected kindness. Because it didn't come the way that they wanted. And with that background in mind, we can start to understand the meaning of Jesus' words in John 4 when he says to the official, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The word you occurs twice in that statement, and both times it is in the plural. Uh, we might translate with a good old Texan, y'all. <laughs> Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. We should have a full Texan translation of the Bible, I firmly believe. <laughs> Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. What's Jesus doing? We might say that Jesus is testing the official. He's asking him the question, which group are you going to find yourself among? Are you going to be a part of that, y'all? Are you going to act like the scribes and Pharisees, and when this good news of great joy comes, are you going to be bitter because it does not come the way that you want, because it undermines the small authority that you have built up, this worldly authority that is passing away? Are you going to find yourself among them, a people who will not believe unless they see signs and wonders, and yet even when they see signs and wonders, do not believe? 
Or are you going to be like the people of Nineveh? Are you going to take the path of humility and of faith and of trust? Which kind of person are you going to be, O oh, you official? It's funny, the official's response to Jesus barely seems to comprehend what Jesus is talking about. He doesn't answer Jesus' statement. He doesn't even ask a question. I think if we were there, we might ask, wait, Jesus, slow down, um, clarify a little bit. What did that mean? But his answer is beautiful. I think his answer says more than you know, a dissertation on it would have said. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. He doesn't argue about Jesus' statement. He doesn't go at him like a scribe, like a Pharisee, like somebody trying to challenge. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. I want us to notice three things in that statement. First, he comes to him with humility. In all likelihood, this is a man who could have come um, you know, with his honor card, perhaps with, with his own political authority, at least his own political connections, to try to force the issue, to try to say, you, O peasant, going around, you know, doing these nice miracles, you have to listen to me because of the authority that I have, because of the person that I am, of the people that I know. Reading a little bit into this this story, we could have expected him to do so, but he doesn't. He comes to Jesus as one under his authority, as one recognizing, you have what I need. You are the only one who can provide. You are the only one who I can look to. And I'll come to you not as a master coming to his servant, but as a servant coming to his master. Sir, come down and save my child. Second, we see faith in Jesus' power. We see this man saying, Jesus, I believe that you can actually do this. I believe that if you come and see my child, that you can actually, you actually have the power, you have the ability to heal him, to do something that is the power of God alone, to heal miraculously. Jesus, I believe, I trust you. I, I understand that that is something that you can do. He came to Jesus with this understanding. Jesus, you can heal him. Often it's suggested that one of the reasons for Jesus' comment about seeing signs and wonders is that the request for him to come to Capernaum represented a lack in faith. I think that's a little bit uncharitable to this uh, official. It's overstretching the evidence a little bit. Um, it wasn't unreasonable for this official to ask Jesus to come to Capernaum. Right? This was essentially the Old Testament um, tradition. If you think about Elijah, Elisha, you know, was, they would touch the man or they would you know fall over the man even uh how oh, is it elijah or is it i think elisha's uh you know when he dies he kind of falls on another dead body and that guy comes to life um, so there's this expectation that that he would come and physically uh touch the sick boy and he would come alive and other times in jesus's life we see him doing it just that way if we think about the example of lazarus a friend of Jesus, somebody he cared deeply about, but he was about a four days' journey away. And by the time he got there, the man had been dead for days, but he came to him, and he, well, he doesn't touch him, but he at least comes close. And he says, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. 
So does the official understand everything about Jesus' power? No. But he understood, he understood one thing, that Jesus had this power. He had this ability to heal his son, and he came to him with trust, with faith. Third, we see an appeal to Jesus' character, to Jesus' love. The official came to Jesus not only as one who had the power to do this thing, but as someone whose character proceeded in acts of blessing toward others, as someone whose character proceeded in healings, in casting out demons, and in turning water into wine so that a host might not feel the sting of shame. He went to Jesus believing and understanding who, to some degree, he was. I don't think he could have given us a full definition, who is Jesus, but I think he knew, I think he had this idea this belief, this faith that Jesus was the sort of person who would do this. So he went to him with humility. He went to him with faith in his power. He went to him with an understanding and a belief in his love. He was asking Jesus to come with him, at least a few days' journey. He was coming and asking Jesus, not just for a small thing, but at least a few days, come over here to heal a boy who may already be dead. He didn't know and he believed it was in Jesus' character to do so. And Jesus' answer spoke to each of these things. He said, go, your son will live. In other words, not only am I granting your request, not only am I receiving your request and answering it, not only am I loving in such a way that, that is willing to do this thing you have asked of me, but my power is such that I don't even need to be physically present, but go, your son will live. And in case we were to imagine that the boy had just gotten better naturally, John hastens to add the last few lines to the story. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. We can imagine those servants going to him just rejoicing and, and glad for him that they got to come and bear this good news. Your son is well. He is getting better. The fever has left him. So he asked them the hour when they, he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. So this, this sign met the man where he was. It met the need that he had, and it showed the character of Jesus to him. Go, your son will live. If we left the story there, it would be a beautiful story. It would be a great story about Jesus' love, about Jesus' power. It would tell us about who he is and what he could do. But this healing, as John says, is not merely a miracle. This healing was a sign. Uh, one study refers to the, the word that we translate sign here this way. It says, uh, it is used dozens of times in the New Testament for what authenticates the Lord and his eternal purpose. What authenticates the Lord and his eternal purpose, especially by doing what mere man cannot replicate or take credit for. So there's a pointing aspect to the sign. If you look at the front of your bulletin, there's that, that sign, and that's exactly what this miracle was doing. It was pointing. It was saying, Yes, this is amazing. I know you're tempted to just keep your hope here, but it's pointing to something even better. 
to authenticate the Lord, to authenticate his eternal purpose. In other words, a sign points to who Jesus is and what Jesus does. So we've seen how this sign points to who Jesus is, but how does it point to what Jesus came to do? If Jesus' main goal was to hold off death for the people around him, we would expect that that would have been all he did, right? If I had that power to go and heal people, I would be in every hospital, I would be running around just like Oprah, you know, that day that she gave out the car. She's like, you get healed, you get healed, you get healed. And surprisingly, that's not really what we see Jesus doing. And we have plenty of miracles um, retold for us that he did. There is no lack of them. But he is surprisingly reserved by showings of his power. And while they were important, while his healing ministry was important, while the miracles were important, Jesus clearly believed that that was not the most important thing he was here to do. But those healings and those miracles were pointing. They were pointing forward to something more central, more important. They were signposts. They were beautiful signposts, but they were signposts. The central message of this, the central message of this whole series that we'll be doing about these signs is that the signs of Christ point to the cross of Christ. The signs of Christ point to the cross of Christ. If we read the miracles of Jesus, if we read the teachings of Jesus, if we read the Gospels and the New Testament in general as if these things were the centers, that this was what he was here for primarily, not that he didn't care, but if this was the center, then we miss the thing that he thought was the center, which was the cross. In fact, everything that he did was pointing there. Everything was moving in that direction. The signs of Christ point to the cross of Christ. What did Jesus come to heal? If we think of this healing in some sense, not merely, merely as an event, but as a symbol, as a metaphor. What did Jesus come ultimately to heal? Not a broken body, but a broken soul. Not a broken heart, not a broken you know, uh, you know, person, not, not a broken arm, not a broken way of living, but a broken soul, a broken person in the sense of sin, a broken person in the sense of living in a way that is contrary to who God is and who God has created us to be, a broken person in the sense that would die even if we were healed. This is in some ways the irony of the healings in the New Testament is that we know with each of those people they aren't still walking around. They aren't still healed. Lazarus isn't somewhere in the Middle East that we need to go on a quest and find him. He died. The official's son hopefully had a beautiful life with his father and rejoiced in who Jesus was as it seems that they did, that he and his whole family came to faith, but they died. But Jesus came to heal not just the broken body, but the broken soul, the brokenness of sin. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the sting of death, the thing that makes death truly awful, is sin. It's not the pain of death, it's not the, the fear of it, it's not the experience of it, it's sin that makes death truly awful. The sting of death is sin. And so we see Jesus healing people, looking forward to Calvary, 
knowing what they needed to be healed from, knowing what they needed, knowing who they were inside and what they needed from him. Looking at people who didn't even know what they needed to be healed from, but planning to do it nonetheless. So he said earlier that the official showed three things that revealed how he saw Jesus. He had humility. He came to Jesus as one under his authority. He had faith in Jesus' power, and he had an understanding, a belief, a faith in Jesus' character and his love. And as we read this passage, the call that it presents to us is to examine ourselves and say, have I come to Jesus in that way? And perhaps as one who has come to Jesus, do I continue to grow in the way that I see him in those ways? There's always a temptation in small churches like this to say, I I can look out and know each of you by name and know something of your story, but I don't know your heart. I can't put my faith in my ability to discern that. I'd my, my call as one preaching this text is to say, if, if you haven't done that, if you haven't received Jesus, if you haven't gone to him as one under his authority, as one believing that he has the power to save you, not only from a broken body, but from the brokenness of sin, if you haven't gone to Jesus as one believing that his character, that his love is such that he wants to save you, that he has given himself for you, if you haven't done that, will you do that? Will you do that today and say, Jesus, I put myself under your authority, knowing that you are the sort of person whose authority it is a joy to be under. We come to him knowing that he has the power to save your body, to save your soul, to save you in ways that you don't even recognize that you need saving, as none of us know to the full extent what we need. There have been times in my life where I've struggled with things and thought, Jesus, why didn't you just deliver me from this in the obvious way? I could think of 20 ways that you could have done it, and I realize all of a sudden, I don't, I don't know what I need. If I got all the things I thought I needed, I think I would be in worse shape than I already was. But God, Jesus knows and has the power to do something about it. And have you come to him as one having seen the beauty of his love for you? Having seen the incredible love that he poured out on the cross as someone who had no need to come to be humiliated, to be laughed at and beaten. Not just at the cross, by the way, not just at that one time, but his entire life to be ridiculed, to be born in a lowly body, in a lowly place, in a lowly city, to be lowly thought of, that he came with that love because he would prefer to be lowly thought of and lowly treated and lowly born than for you to remain in your lowly condition. Have you seen his love? And if you have seen his love, and I hope that you have, it's a joy to think that I'm preaching to a a group of, I can't count all of you, but who knows, a hundred people here this morning, maybe a little less, and that each of us will be there with him, face to face in eternity, saying, I I know your love even more now than I did yesterday. And have you gazed at him anew today? That's the call that that he gives to us, like this official, not just one day, one healing to come near and to see who he is, but again and again to put our, our 
joy in him, not just our faith in him, but our joy in him, and to say, Jesus, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for doing what you did and what you do. This is the call of Jesus. This is what he calls us to, not to earn our way to him, but to rejoice and come to him as he has brought himself to us. I hope you'll continue to join us as we look at the rest of these signs and the different ways that Jesus reveals himself, the different ways that Jesus shows his goodness, his power, his love. I'm looking forward to it as we draw near slowly to Easter and that truth of the resurrection.